You know what that is. You guys ready for March Madness? I know you're ready for March Madness. The brackets are out. We're ready to go. Syracuse is in the big dance once again. A nice stress-free selection Sunday for once, right? My friend and colleague, Mike Waters from Syracuse.com, joins us on Stick to Syracuse today. We'll break it all down for you. We'll also hear from my friend Bob Searing, Curator Bob from the Onondaga Historical Association, our monthly Central New York history lesson from Bob, and we'll find out what's happening over at the OHA. And the blues Americana sound of Chris Merkley. Hey, how'd you find us today on the Stick to Syracuse podcast? Did you hit the link on Syracuse.com or find us on social media? That's great. But just a reminder that you can subscribe to this podcast. Go to iTunes, Google Play, Spotify. You can also find us on SoundCloud. Hit that subscribe button, and then a new episode of the Stick to Syracuse podcast will automatically arrive wherever you listen to your podcasts. Let's get this party started, Just Joe, and we'll talk some hoops. Gentlemen, your host of Stick to Syracuse, Brett X. In 2016, the Doug Gottliebs and Mike Greenbergs of the world were certainly upset when Syracuse was included in the NCAA tournament field as a 10 seed. All they did that year was make a run to the Final Four. In 2017, we thought Syracuse's buzzer-beating victory over Duke was good enough to get them in the field. As it turns out, it wasn't. In 2018, Syracuse was literally the last team selected, number 68, and that team made a run to the Sweet 16. So what awaits the 2019 Orange, whose selection process was a lot less stressful than those teams? Let's talk to Mike Waters, my friend and colleague from Syracuse.com, about that. So Mike, we go back to two years ago, and this team comes in, everybody's screaming that they shouldn't have been there, and they made a run to the Final Four. That team had Malachi Richardson, Tyler Lydon, Michael Benege, Trevor Cooney. It was Tyler Oberson who was really good in the paint that kind of got them over the hump. Last year, they're barely down to, what, five and a half, six players. They <laughs> lean on their defense and make a great run to the Sweet 16. So what is the identity of this team as we get ready for a late-night start Thursday night against Baylor? You know, Brent, that's a great question, and I'm not sure uh, what the identity is of this team. Um, you know, the, all their individuals have been so inconsistent, and at last year's team really just they hitched its, the, their success onto the fact that they were just going to play defense. And if they had to beat you 59 to 57, they were fine with that, or in the low 60s. And this team's a little better offensively, so you know they're. But in doing so, they're not quite as good defensively as they were. I would say if you had to had to look at anything, I think the key factor for this year's team is even though they're not a great three-point shooting team percentage-wise, they need to hit threes to win. There's, I think the number is 17-3 and three when they make 10 or more three-pointers in a game. You know, that, that's, that's a really impressive winning percentage. And I think it was 9-2 and two in the ACC. So even against you know the ACC competition, if they make threes, they can win. The only problem is I don't really know if, you, if it's your identity when you don't make, as a team, an incredible percentage of right. them. 
and that's what we hear this time of the year. You got to make threes, guard play, like all the yep. cliches come up. But that's the big difference between last year's team and this year's team. And specifically, you have Elijah Hughes that can hit some threes, and you have Buddy Bayheim, who's been coming around and has played better as of late, that can hit some three pointers. So I wonder, you're Baylor, how much film do you study? How much of these trends do you notice? And could one of those guys kind of get open and, and be an X factor in this game? You know, if you're Baylor and you're looking at Syracuse, I think you look at a couple things. First of all, you know who Tyus Battle is, and you have to figure out a way to stop Tyus. Now, do you have a lockdown defender, someone who can, you know, be in front of him, maybe give him problems? Uh, I don't know if they have a DeAndre Hunter type, um, but other teams have been able to have some success against Tyus this year. It's it's all a matter of help defense, but when you provide the help defense, it has to come fast. And then someone's going to be left open. So then you have to recover. And, and you know, who do you help off, off of? You know, uh, some teams did a great job, but they helped off the centers. Because Syracuse's centers aren't going to hurt you offensively. Um, I would say, too, if Baylor's looking at the tape, you mentioned Elijah Hughes and Buddy Bayheim. Those have to be two guys they have to be aware of. Uh, anybody coming up against Syracuse, you don't leave those two guys open. You know, Mike, I kind of wondered, going into the ACC tournament, how much better this team could get. I, I think we all kind of knew they'd be there one, two games maybe, given Duke and Carolina were in the way, mm-hmm. depending on how far they advanced. I think they did get better. I think mm-hmm. they did, you know, kind of round off some edges in Charlotte at that tournament, particularly Frank Howard. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we've got to approach this cautiously optimistic for Frank. He says he feels great. He says he feels like coming off the summer. And Jim Beheim's referenced that a lot in press conferences this year. Well, Frank, coming out of the summer, looked really good. Yeah. And now it seems like those two, Beheim and Frank in particular, feel like he's back to that player. I guess we'll see. But that's good news for Syracuse if their senior point guard is feeling as good as he has all year long coming into the tournament. It would be tremendous for Syracuse because... Frank's struggles this year have been a big reason why Syracuse hasn't quite lived up to the preseason expectations that uh, folks in the media and the fans or even Jim Boeheim uh, had for this team. Um, you know, I'm cautious about saying that Frank's back because he's had some other good games. Um, he's, he's scored against Duke in the win down at Cameron. Uh, he had some other games where he played well. But the thing that was a little bit different about Frank at the ACC tournament was, especially against Duke, it wasn't all predicated on just shooting threes. He started driving a little bit more and driving against tougher opponents. Zion Williamson's lurking in there. Well, exactly. and you're and and Trey Jones is defending you, and it's not easy to drive on Trey Jones. Um, and Frank was attempting to do it and successful at it a few times. As you well know, there was a lot of time this this past season where Frank didn't even attempt to drive. It's like he knew he didn't have that explosiveness. Um, and so he, was, he wasn't really the dynamic point guard that Syracuse hoped it had coming into the season. He was almost just a glorified shooting guard, and it wasn't helping the flow of the offense. You brought up how important Ty's battle is for this team. He missed the ACC tournament. Yeah, that was a nasty spell he took. I think they took a very cautious approach with him, as they should have. Feels like he's doing better. Seems like he's doing better. But you're practicing, getting back into the flow of things. Long plane trip to Salt Lake City. And when you're dealing with kind of lower back injury type of things. (laughs) Yeah, guys our age, we know all about that. We know all about this. (laughs) It can get a little tricky. So I'm kind of wondering, 
the approach for Tyus there, certainly uh, Baylor's going to be all over him, as you mentioned, but that, that's going to be huge to see just how much he's back in, in the flow of things to determine how far Syracuse is going to go here. Yeah, I was told even when at the time when I was told he wasn't playing against Pittsburgh that he would be back for the NCAA. So that's a good sign for Syracuse. I don't think they're this is anything unexpected for them or they're not rushing him back. I think they, they always knew that he was going to be ready. Um, but we'll have to see how he's moving. There's being able to get back on the court and playing, and then there's are you still Tyus Battle at the at the highest level of of that type of player? Are you driving aggressively? You know, do you have that step back, that quick Kobe Bryant jumper that he loves to take? Um, and and the fact is, is they're going to need him because Baylor is a, a, a very uh, athletic team. They play zone. Interesting. Hello. Yeah, they play zone. So it's a one-three-one zone, right? They play some two-three as well. Yeah, Scott Drew. Scott Drew has a two-three in his arsenal. Wow, we're just blowing up the narrative here, Mike. What is Syracuse's big advantage every year? Nobody plays that zone. Hey, and we can talk about that if you want. How's Baylor going to do against the zone when actually they do see see one? So uh, and and they play it themselves. So, but going back to Tyus, is he really at a hundred percent? Or is he, I'm fine and I'm able to, you know, I'm playing and I'm not hurting myself by playing, but I'm stiff. Well, it's not only that, it's how they played without him, Mike. I mean, anybody that says this was a better team without him, just hand in your basketball card right now. You're not allowed well, to watch this team anymore. Listen, but, they, they did play well. But they did play yes. well. They adjusted, particularly you could see a lot less, you know, how can I put this? They were a little less selfish. They moved the ball around mm-hmm. and they rallied. They kind of figured out like this is how we're going to win without our best player. So now when you interject your best player in there, you want ties with the ball in his hands. But there were some good things they did without him on the court. So how do you mesh those two together? I guess is the big question. Buddy Beheim played well at the ACC tournament. Played well and and, and it wasn't just again all shooting threes either. Buddy has kind of developed this little. Um, I, I call it the YMCA drive because <laughs> it's not like he blows by people, but it's kind of like this slow, like dribble, dribble, and he's six foot five, and he gets into the lane, and he'll rise up, and he takes the little soft jumper, and he's, it's great. He doesn't have to blow by people. He doesn't go all the way to the rim, but he gets to about ten to twelve <laughs> feet, and he's good at that, and that's great because. You know, he gets a little bit of an edge on his drives because people have to come all the way out on him. Because you give him space, he's going to knock that three down on you. So um, that was a good sign. I tell you what, Marek Dolajai played well against Pitt when Pitt went zone. And maybe this is something that Syracuse fans should watch for as Syracuse gets ready to go up against Baylor. Syracuse found success in the second half of that Pittsburgh game when Pitt was playing zone by putting Marek in at the four and put him at the high post. And he's. He can turn around and he can make that 15-footer, but he's also a tremendous passer. He's got good court vision. Uh, so the ball was moving. Ball goes into the high post, and he was swinging it to Buddy Beheim on the other side or Elijah Hughes and all those threes that Syracuse made in the second half of that game where they really they blew Pitt off the floor in the second half. Um, I, I, just, I love that, that combination of Marek at the high post. You touched on it. Baylor plays a little zone, mm-hmm. so they've seen a little zone. They're an interesting team in that they're they're pretty parallel with Syracuse in terms of record and where they finished in their conference. They had a, a key injury down the stretch. They lost a few games uh, at the end of the regular season, as Syracuse did as well, uh, and they were without one of their key players. So what do we know about Baylor and, and how, at least initially, these teams match up? Well, you mentioned the player that got hurt, 
uh, Tristan Clark, uh, six foot nine sophomore, tremendous player, maybe their best player or second best player. He got hurt after 14 games. So 14 games in the season, Baylor had to rework itself. They had to readjust, and they really did a good job, actually. Uh, there was a point earlier this year where I forget what, exactly what their record was. I think they were about 15-6. and six. and um, But then they kind of slumped at the end of the year, and they've lost their last four games. They lost their last three regular season games. They lost to Iowa State in the Big 12 tournament. Now, Iowa State's good. Iowa State won the Big 12 tournament. Yeah, so yeah. it's not a bad thing to have yeah. lost to Iowa State, but they lost the three games leading up to that. So this is probably a Baylor team that's got to try to figure out where they are as well and, and kind of get their legs back. I mean, but sometimes that week you get leading up to the NCAA tournament allows a team to figure things out a little bit, refocus on themselves, and, and maybe get away from the opponents that know you. I mean, how many times have we seen Syracuse limp you know, down the last five regular season games, go one and four or whatever, and get bounced in the tournament? But then as soon as they see somebody that's not familiar with them, they pick things up and, and they go and, and win a couple of tournament games. Now, coaches can't look ahead, Mike, but we can. Yes, right. Barring another <laughs> upset of historic proportions... Gonzaga is going to be waiting for the winner of Baylor in Syracuse. And Syracuse is one of those teams that's had a lot of success against Gonzaga in recent years. Yeah. They don't scare off Syracuse. And Jim Beheim and Mark Few know each other really well. And it'll be interesting if uh, they match up again. This one will be in Salt Lake City. So certainly a lot of Gonzaga fans are going to make that short trip. But I'd like to see that match up again. I think it'd be fun. Um, Jim Beheim and Mark Few won't like it because, <laughs> you know, coaching friends don't like to coach against each other, especially in the tournament. But it's kind of funny. Uh, Julie Beheim apparently was on the phone with Mark Few's wife Saturday night. And Jim said he, he told Julie, you might want to tell her we're, we're probably heading out that way. And sure enough, he was right. He was... I think a lot of people had it scoped out that Syracuse could end up in a, on the 8-9 line and, and would almost have to be sent west. Uh, so they end up with Gonzaga. They played Gonzaga in the second round in 2010. It wasn't the greatest Gonzaga team ever. Um, I think they were um, perhaps an 8 or a 9 seed. Syracuse won and, and went on to the Sweet 16. And then uh, in 2016, they, they saw them in the Sweet 16 in Chicago. And this is in the middle of that run to the Final Four for Syracuse. And, man, that was a tremendous game. I know you remember a lot oh, of it. fun game. Um, and it wasn't decided until Tyler Lydon had the game-saving block uh, on, I think it was Josh Perkins. That's right. Who is now Gonzaga's senior point guard or junior point guard, but he's their starting point guard. Um, so very few guys for Syracuse left from that year, but Gonzaga has you know, Josh Perkins uh, left around, so... Uh, but, yeah, they, you had uh, Sabonis' uh, kid on that team. Kyle Wilcher was on that Gonzaga team. That was a really good Gonzaga team. Uh, but Syracuse pulled off the upset and went on and, of course, beat Virginia two days later. Hey, what do you say? Have a happy day because we're living in Syracuse. So we're back here at the OHA, the Onondaga Historical Association. My man Bob, curator Bob, is here. You want to grab the guitar again, like last uh, time? I need a, I need a couple pints of Guinness before <laughs> we do that. That's it. It's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because we're just coming off St. Patrick's Day, and we had Peter Coleman and David Hoyne on the show last week, and it's fascinating to hear them talk about Irish culture. Yeah. So I wanted to talk to you about Irish history. Now we all know the green light on top, the stone throwers. You know, you go to Tip Hill. 
and stand on a street corner for five minutes, somebody's going to tell you those stories. For right? sure. But the Irish history in central New York goes a lot deeper than that. Yeah, it goes, you know, really it goes back to even before the Erie Canal. So the first Irish people are streaming into, uh, you know, Onondaga County very early in the 1790s and early 1800s. They come to work in the salt industry. Um, come to boil salt in the salt blocks, and it is actually those salt blocks, which is where they bring their potatoes, and that's how we get the salt potato stuff. So it's like stuff like that. And so once you have a community of Irish people here, it's a welcoming community, particularly because the Irish are really discriminated against in a lot of places. Um, so they can come here to a place like Syracuse, and by the 1850s, there are several thousand Irish people living in a city. Syracuse's population around 20,000 in the middle of the 1850s. About 6,000 of those people are Irish. Where was the conflict there? So if they were being discriminated against, who, were, who, were, who, was, ha- who was not happy that they were? They were uh, if you've seen Gangs in New York, Scorsese's oh, yeah. movie, right? Bill, Bill the Butcher, the Americans, that, that know-nothing, that nativist strain. So these first-generation or second-generation Americans in the first place um, are upset, A, that there are immigrants coming in, and B, that they're Irish, because there's the stereotype that the Irish are slovenly Catholics. They don't think for themselves. They're illiterate. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not good fodder to make real Americans. So they come in, and they're also upset that they're basically easily sort of swayed to vote Democratic. So it's a political thing. It's an economic thing. It's a... I should know Bob is wearing a hat right now. You could be in the movie Gangs of New York. I could, indeed. That is a fantastic hat. Thank you. Sir, I've worn one of these uh, most of my life, sort of an homage to my grandfather. There my you go. my whole family on the mom's side is Irish all the way. Really, in the yeah. in the spirit of this thing, I'm not going to put out a picture of this or anything. I'm just going to let people use their imagination. That's what it's we the look, beauty of this format. Right? It's, it is wonderful. Draw pictures with words. So what else you got for me? Bob? So I was telling you earlier. So we've got some really funny stuff. So again, there's this. You know, the press is controlled by you know the economic powerhouses in the city, and you know while there are parts of the city that are pro-Irish. Some so of the we're still in the 1850s. We're still in the 1850s, yeah. 1860s. So we've yeah. just got so I was pulling some of these stuff. So this is the sort of stuff you would have seen in a newspaper. Post Standard, um, Syracuse Standard 1856. A row in Geddes. A wicked row occurred Thursday night at a dance in a part of Geddes known as Tipperary, in which an Irishman named Gabby Mike, great nickname, got a terrible thrashing. After Mike got some 3 inches of whiskey in his stomach, he became quite valiant and allowed he could lick every Greek on the corporation. A little chap about the size of Mike took up the challenge and went in on his muscle. In a few minutes, all the starch was taken out of Mike, and the row ended by carrying him home on a hand wagon. The, that is spectacular. How that, come we don't write like that anymore? I don't know. And why, when did we stop covering bar fights? Yes. I mean, let's go, right? It's a whole new beat. I'm going <laughs> to pitch this to my it's bosses. A, it's a whole new beat. So, I mean, this is... Wait, a, wait, what's what's... Did you say knock the starch out? Knock of the starch out. I kind of think it's again. This is all sort of anti-Irish. I think it's a reference to potatoes. Ah, ever starchy. Okay. But uh, this one reminded me. This is funny because my grandfather, who's an old Irish guy, used to say "lick," like he'll I'll, he'll lick you, which we laughed at as kids because we couldn't figure out what the hell he was talking. about. And I love the the row reference. The there. row yeah. that needs to come back. Exactly. Let's go have a row. They have a row. Man. Me and you have a disagreement, sir. We're gonna go have a row We're gonna, in the street. That's right. A roll in the street after a couple pints. So, I mean, like, it's it's funny. So you've got this sort of stuff going on in the press. And then, you know, as the Irish population continues to grow, continues to thrive, gets itself into positions of political power, we get up to, you know, one of my favorite stories as of late has been the story of the boy mayor, uh, Mayor uh, James McGuire, who's elected to office in his mid-20s. 
and comes in on this really sort of strong, um, progressive platform. He calls for the city to take over ownership of the electric streetcars and stuff like that. He's a strong proponent of labor rights. Um, and I mean, he really sort of lays the groundwork for Syracuse as a really sort of progressive um, city. So what? So how come Mayor McGuire swept in and, and was elected so young? Just jumped in the pool and yeah you know he he seemed to be a very charismatic guy you read um all the sort of press clippings about him he just had one of the, he just had that charisma he had that personality great on the stump um really had a brain clearly for organization um and you know it was a period where Syracuse was sort of under stronghold of of republican politics Syracuse has always been a really strong republican city uh, back to the party of Lincoln uh but McGuire just he was from here he had been born and raised here his father had been sort of an activist fighting for 8 hour workday and things like that and the labor union um so i think he just had he just had a lot of uh support that way. One of the really cool things, once he leaves office uh, in the early 1900s, he continues to sort of uh, organize Irish interests as the Irish themselves are fighting for independence against Great Britain over there. So Syracuse actually plays a really large role in some of that transatlantic politics. Chris Merkley has performed over a thousand shows from the streets of Paris to venues throughout Europe and across the United States. He's released nine albums with a variety of groups, which include the songwriting duo Merkley and Morgan, his high-octane bluegrass and country blues globe-trotting band The Crooners, and the swampy blues rock trio of Digger Jones. Hurry up and wait, take a break and breathe. It's another day, it's another week. Whittle what you want of the what you choose. It's a little world with a lot to do New York to Nashville Again, I'm on my way In addition to an extensive career of recording and touring, Merkley has composed and produced an extensive catalog of original music for television and songs featured in several independent films, including for HBO. Now, this is the part where I usually toss to the interview that Kathleen Mason from K-Mace Production does with our weekly artist on the sound scene. Due to an editing mishap this week, we don't have that interview. My apologies for that. But what we do have is Chris's great music. And I would encourage you to visit his website, chrismerkley.com, to learn more. So let's take a listen to this tune from Chris's latest album, Mementos. It's called Suitcase Full of Stars. I think you'll like this one. away the days beneath the same moon. Sit and I watch these falling grains of sand Living today but dying just to see you So I sit and I wait until the day I can If you ask me for the world, bring it round You ask me for the stars, I'll pull them down. And one by one, I'll stack them up. And row by row, I'll color code a suitcase full of stars for you to hold. Only you and your eyes in the morning. Only you can ease my mind this way 
what you do is magic to my senses I don't need to mention all the things you do and what I say is ask me for the world I bring it by I pull all of the stars out of the sky ask me anything you like no matter what the sacrifice I do it you don't need reason why And now a note about next week's episode of Stick to Syracuse. On March 1st, Kathleen Mason and I recorded an interview for the sound scene with Ian LaRochelle and Curtis Tallbucks McDowell, a local hip-hop artist. Sadly, we must report that since that interview was recorded, Tallbucks has passed away. I had never met Curtis until a couple weeks ago on March the 1st when we recorded that interview. He was full of life and somebody who had big plans for not only 2019, but the years ahead, including opening a local restaurant with his mother. Curtis was a dedicated father, a dedicated musician, and loved by his friends and family, and will be dearly missed. It is our intention here on Stick to Syracuse to air that interview in its entirety next week to honor Curtis's legacy and to those that loved him. We thank you for listening to this episode of Stick to Syracuse and look forward to hearing again from Curtis next week. It's just us, We're killing each other, that's not justice. It's just us, and we killing each other, that's not justice. One nation under God, you know we trust us. All we got is us. What? Yeah, still exists. So many people tell me their problems like I can solve them. To be happy is all I wanted. No drama, but it's dangerous to swim with piranhas. Dealing with my kids and they mamas. I'm the realest of fathers. I feel the hearts of the people. Why you feeling designers? With skin pillars, Madonnas. I build with my brothers. Police scared of our minors. <laughs>